I was thinking this week that it almost felt normal to be here this week, right? Uh, we have cool weather, back on campus, uh, all the classes and everything gearing up for this Sunday, being back on campus, and it just almost feels like a normal week. We hadn't had one of those in a while, so I'm pretty excited about that. So tonight we're going to st- uh, start in a study on Esther, and um, as we look at the book of Esther, you're going to see a lot of crazy things happen. We're going to see a villain uh, named Haman, right? And we're going to see a Jewish man and a Jewish woman who are going to become unlikely heroes in this story. And then you're going to have a sinful, uh, prideful king who uh, is going to be a central player in this, in this story as well. There's a great plot with lots and lots of twists and turns uh, that keep you on the edge of your seat. You don't know what's going to happen next. But at the end of this story, you're going to see the bad guy lose and we're going to see the heroes win. But if we're not careful, that's exactly what this story will become. It will be a story about seeing the bad guy lose and the good guys win And uh, that's what it will become. It will become this little, neat little lesson in the Old Testament about vanity, about anger, um, about selfishness. And while this book has some great um, teaching about those things, and we're going to learn about all of those things, it's so much more than those things. Uh, This book is a critical part of God's plan to save the world through one man, Jesus Christ. So, Dr. Jeremiah says it this way. says, The book of Esther shows how God's unseen hand orchestrated the affairs of humanity by providential arrangement. Esther teaches that God's purposely guides, God purposely guides our steps even when we're not aware of it. And even when things don't make sense. Every thread woven into the fabric of the Christian life is a part of the ultimate tapestry that someday we'll view really can build our hopes on things eternal as we hold on to God's unchanging hand. So a little bit of history on the book of Esther. Uh, Esther is the last of the historical books. This is what would be called a post-exilic book, meaning that God's people are in bondage for the most part after being taken uh, into captivity by the Babylonians. And then, of course, we have the Babylonians being taken over by the Persians, and that is where we find uh, the Jewish people here in this story in bondage by the Persians. Now, many of God's people at this time have returned home. We have Ezra, uh, uh, as he writes about rebuilding of the temple. We have Nehemiah, rebuilding of the walls. Uh, And so many of God's people are home, but a lot of God's people are still in bondage. They have planted exactly where they are. They live, uh, live as foreigners uh, in a foreign land, and so they have uh, planted themselves in these situations. And that's where we find Esther and Mordecai in this story. They are um, a part of the group that have not returned home. They're still living in a foreign land. So uh, Esther is one of only two books uh, named after a woman. Esther and Ruth are the two. And if you look at the book of Esther and you look at the book of Ruth, they are as polar opposites as you can get from two different um, stories by comparison. Ruth is a love story, where we're going to see Esther is a very dark story. 
We have um, the gentleness of Ruth, uh, where we have the intensity that's found in the book of Esther. We see uh, a slow sadness uh, in the book of Ruth, where we see a desperate crisis in in, in Esther. Um, We see inner beauty uh, with Ruth. We see superficial attractiveness with Esther, from ordinary to impressive, from really pretty much an unknown uh, story to the center of the most powerful nation on earth at the time. So when you think about these two women and these books that are in the Bible named after women, they are completely and totally polar opposites. Esther is adopted. Um, Esther is one of the only few people in the Old Testament that we see that it mentions that they are adopted. A few others um, would have been Moses, adopted into Pharaoh's family. And then, of course, uh, Samuel, who was probably raised, uh, who was raised by Eli. But we know that at some point in chapter 2, we're going to see that her parents have died. And she is being taken care of by her cousin Mordecai. And so she is adopted. Um, The author of the book of Esther is unknown. Um, Some scholars argue that it's Mordecai that wrote the book. And uh, one of the reasons why they say that is from chapter 9 verse 20. Which states, and Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the providence of King Ahasuerus, uh, both near and far. So, Esther uh, is the only book that does not clearly mention the name of God. That's one of the things that we're going to talk about throughout this book as we go through it, is that God's name is not mentioned not going to hear, we're going to hear about fasting, we're not going to hear about fasting and praying, and we're going to talk about a lot of that stuff as we move forward, but uh, the only other book that this, uh, some scholars think that the Song of Solomon, uh, God's name is not mentioned, but except for one little line where they say, this is a mention of God, in the book of Esther, you're not going to find that, God is not mentioned in the book in any way, shape, or form, however, I want us to realize that as we unfold this story, as we talk about the Esther over the next several weeks, you're going to see God's fingerprints over everything that happens in the book of Esther. And it's, it's really unique and fun to watch. So a couple of questions as we start off Esther. First of all, what is the significance of this book? Why did God choose to add a book into his word that does not have his name in it? Um, What's the relevance of it? What is a Persian girl who lived a long time, uh, uh, Hebrew girl that lived a long time ago who's going to uh, become a Persian queen living a long time ago have to do with me today? We're going to look at that. And then, of course, why would God choose to include, choose not to include his name in this book? We're going to look at that and try to answer that tonight. So, um, One thing I do want us to understand is that the book of Esther is very significant for us today. Very practical for us today, especially in the day that we live in today. So uh, with that said, let's pray and we will dive in. So God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for stories like we're going to find here in the book of Esther. Where even though we don't hear your name mentioned at all. Nothing. 
that we can see you at work. And all throughout history, we can see how you have done things your way, uh, done things in a way that people did not expect. And that's exactly what's going to happen in the book of Esther. So God, I pray that you would unfold this truth uh, for us tonight. I pray that it would find meaning in our hearts and help us to apply it to our lives in such a way that we can only serve you more. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. So the first thing that we're going to talk about tonight is what is the significance of the book of Esther? Why is it so important that God would include it in our Bibles? And I think to understand that, you have to go all the way back to the beginning. So God has created the heavens and the earth. uh, And in the centerpiece of his creation, we have Adam and Eve. He created man in his own image. And here sits uh, Adam and Eve as the centerpiece of his creation. And God is going to take a step back and he's going to say, this is good. But very quickly, the serpent, Satan, enters into the scene and he will go directly after the very thing that God created that is in his own image. And he will lie to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve will take the bait and they will sin. They will fail the test that is set before them and they will sin. And they will disobey God and everything that God had created will be broken. And at this point of the story, you look at God's creation and you're thinking, this looks really bad. But God had a plan. So here's your big idea for the book of Esther. Even in a book that does not mention God, he is still working out his plan to save the world through his son Jesus. To find God's plan, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. If you have a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 3. This part of scripture is called uh, the Proto-Evangelium, which is the first gospel. This is where uh, we will see the first mention of what God's plan is to unfold to fix the sin problem uh, of Adam and Eve. Right here, God told man and woman how he would reverse death. Uh, so that man could return to his right standing with God. So uh, right here in verse 15, chapter 3, Genesis, let's read. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And God is saying right here that there's going to be a struggle. And the same struggle that's about to start happening in Genesis chapter 3 is the same struggle that we're going to find in the book of Esther. And the first thing that we need to ask about this is who is the seed of the woman? And God answers it in this verse. It's going to be he, uh, one singular man, that will bruise your head and he, you shall bruise his heel. It's going to be one singular man that will crush the head of Satan and Satan will bruise that that man's heel. That one man is going to have victory over sin, victory over death, um, victory ultimately over Satan, and but he's going to be wounded in the process. Who is that one man? Of course we know who that is. It's going to be Jesus, right? And so 
we celebrate the fact that Jesus accomplished that on the cross. We celebrate that every single Sunday. Every single Sunday, exactly like we do on Easter, we celebrate what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that's what it's talking about here in Genesis chapter 3. So, what does Esther teach us about that? In Genesis chapter 3, this battle starts raging, right? And there's this plan from the beginning that there's going to be this, this enmity between the seed of the woman and between Satan. And there's going to be this battle and it's going to be uh, very much at work. Satan's going to be working in overtime to do everything that he can to stop God's plan so that we can be made right in God's sight again. So, the first thing we need to understand is that God's plans cannot be stopped. What he starts, he finishes. He's true to his word. Everything that he says in his word is going to come to fruition. We've seen it all over and over throughout history. Okay, So, Satan's attacks begin immediately. We see Adam and Eve have two sons. They have Cain and Abel. And we see that because of this plan that God places, the seed of the woman, Satan goes exactly after the seed of the woman. He's going to trick Cain into killing his brother Abel. And even after God warned him not to, and you think at this point, well, this looks really bad. You have one evil brother just kill the other brother. I mean, if this was God's plan, then this really looks like things are starting to unfold. But we see God had a plan. God promised to do this through the seed of the woman. How? One son just killed the other. How can this still continue? And we know right after this story, God had a plan. They had Seth. And Seth was the son in which the seed was to continue through. God was continuing to honor his promise. But guess what? Satan continues to work. He will influence the culture so much that God will regret that he even made man. He says, I'm going to destroy all of them. But guess what? God still had a plan. And through one man, Noah, we see that God had a plan to save his people. To continue on with his promise. So God destroys the entire earth. Surely things would be different after this, right? They had a sacrifice. They have the rainbow to remember. Surely it would be different. Satan was still at work. Satan was still going after the seed of the woman. So what does he do? He goes, the the whole culture goes crazy. And they build a tower. And they start worshiping the creation rather than the creator. So what does God do? God had a plan. He confused their language. He sends them out all over the earth. God still had a a plan. He says, you know what? I'm going to create my own nation. So we have Abraham. We have Isaac. We have Jacob. And we know that Jacob had 12 sons. God still had a plan. But guess what? Satan was still at work. And one of those sons loved God. And the other brothers despised him for it. They decided to put him to death. But then they realized, hey, we can make a dollar off this. Let's sell him. So they sell Joseph into slavery. We know that God had a plan. We see that Joseph eventually becomes the second most powerful man in the world. 
and a drought happens. And it just so happens that Joseph had set up all of these feeding stations, right? He had these dreams. He saved up all this grain. And because of that, his family would be saved. His people would be saved from this uh, famine that would happen in the land. God still had a plan. And we will see that Joseph will even look at his brothers and say, listen, I know that you meant this for evil, but God had a plan for it, and he meant it for good. You see, God's plans cannot be stopped. Secondly, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. And even though he always keeps his promises, guess what? Satan's still at work. He's still at work. And up comes a Pharaoh after this who did not remember Joseph. And he sees all of these Hebrew people and he doesn't like it. So he says, I'm just going to get rid of them. So he starts killing off all the young boys. But guess what? God still had a plan. And one escapes. And his name literally means to draw out. And we know that Moses would eventually lead his people out of bondage from the Egyptians. So back and forth, this enmity between Satan and the seed of the woman. Back and forth, we see this battle taking place. And in fact, you get to the New Testament, you see a guy named King Herod. right? And he wants to kill all the young male boys in the area because... He knew that this was the line in which the Messiah was to come. So if I get rid of them, I can be done with this. And I don't have to worry about it. And I can remain king. But God had a plan. And in a dream, Joseph knows about this dream. And he takes Jesus away. He takes Jesus away so that he can be safe from this. So back and forth we see this. And it will continue all the way to the cross. And guess what? We're still living in the midst of that battle going on. Satan, knowing that his battle has lost, he still goes after God's people. He still uh, wants to take as many people with him as he can. So back and forth. And we have to understand that the same battle that was taking place in Genesis chapter 3, the same battle that was taking place in the book of Esther, is the same battle and same struggle that we're living in today. And just as a spoiler alert for you, um, you have this guy named Haman. And he's a very big character in the book of Esther. We're going to hear his name a lot. Uh, He's going to be influenced by Satan. And he gets very upset with this guy named Mordecai. And we're going to see that not only does he want to have Mordecai killed, but he says, I'm going to have you and all of your people wiped off the face of the earth. And because he's cunning, and because he's... uh, has some pull with the king. He's going to trick the king into signing an edict that will completely wipe out God's people. I want you to think about that for a second. If this plan, if Satan had succeeded in his plan, we're going to see that if that were to happen, the seed would have been wiped out. There would have been no Messiah. There would have been no Savior. And Satan would have won. But guess what? God had a plan. And so what does the book of Esther teach us? God's plans can't be stopped. He always keeps his promises. Third, he is faithful. We just sang about that and how faithful God is. His purpose and his plan will not be derailed. 
They will not be stopped. And no little guy named Haman is going to keep God from fulfilling his promises. Uh, And just as a warning, um, in case you uh, are not a Christ follower, uh, it's a really bad place to oppose God. It usually doesn't end very well for people who oppose God. Uh, And you're going to see... In an ironic turn of events, this guy Haman is going to create these gallows. He's like, you know what? I'm not just going to take you out, Mordecai. I'm going to create these gallows, and I'm going to put you on display. When I kill you, all will see it. And that's the exact gallows that Haman will eventually swing in his death. So you don't want to oppose God. In the book of Acts, we see a couple of guys uh, try to oppose God. We see Saul... And Herod, one is going to be enlisted into God's team. The other one is going to be eaten by worms. You just don't want to be in a place that you uh, oppose God. So the book of Esther, I know it's about the providence of God. It's about the faithfulness of God to set out what he accomplished in Genesis chapter 3. And as we start looking through what God has in store in his plan, we just need to understand it cannot be stopped. He is bigger than Haman. He is bigger than King Ahasuerus. He is bigger than Satan. He's in control and he will be victorious. That's your last blank there. He's in control and he will be victorious. This isn't just a story about a girl who becomes a queen. Which that's going to be a really cool part of the story. But this is a story about God's plan to save the world through his son Jesus. So the question is why do we need to hear that today? Why do we need to hear that today in this uh, time that we live in? In a time where there's wars and rumors of wars. In a time when there's earthquakes. Yes, even earthquakes in Odessa, Texas, as weird as those are. Um, when you have viruses that make everyone go crazy. That shake our, you know, the very structure of America to its core. When... We live in a day when you look around and we just feel like the world is on edge and we don't know who's going to win the presidency and we don't know what's going to happen. There should be a group of us called Christians that should look at the situation and we should have a calmness about us because we know that we have a God who's in control. We shouldn't, it shouldn't shake us to our core. He hasn't left us. He hasn't abandoned us. He's still faithful. You can know that he's going to fulfill his promises. God will win. He will take care of his people. Yes, it's about a girl that becomes a queen. But more importantly, it's about a God who has a plan to save the world. And this book is highly significant in that manner. So why did God not mention his name in this book? Uh, First, I just want to acknowledge that If God wanted to include his name in this book, I think he would have, right? I think he would have uh, revealed himself in a way that, uh, like we see in Daniel, very specifically in the book of Daniel where God is mentioned many times. But in the book of Esther, you're going to see a lot of the same things take place even though the name of God is not mentioned. So to answer this question, we're going to uh, read a small portion from Esther chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, open up to Esther chapter 4. And just to give you a little context as you're turning there, the Jews are in trouble. The edict has been signed. Um, I've told you a little bit about the plot already, but 
Haman is about to succeed. He's tricked the king to sign this edict. The Jews are about to be destroyed. And Mordecai sends word to Esther, who is now the queen. And he wants Esther to go before the king and to ask uh, that and beg on behalf of her people uh, to say that this has happened, this is who I am, and you should ask the king to stop it. Um, and his message was this. What if you've been placed here for such a time as this? What if this, for this very reason you are here? God has given you this position for a reason. I think you should do something. Um, Esther's response is going to be no. Initially, at least, it's going to be no. Um, because there was a law. And uh, as we're going to see next week, uh, the king is not a very forgiving man. And he sets lots of laws up. And to eat, there is a law that if someone comes into his presence where he's at, without being summoned by the king, they are to be immediately put to death. He can have them killed on the spot. That's a law. And I think Esther knew this. And I think Esther knew this because Esther probably saw this. You come into my presence, you don't ask for permission, I take you out. And so she's like, not going to happen. I'm not going in there. You're crazy. I, I, I know 100% that he would kill me if I did that. And so she hasn't been in to see the king for 30 days. Mordecai says, you should go in. She's like, not going to happen. Let's read... Uh, a little bit of, let's pick up on this story. Verse 12, chapter 4, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think of yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all of the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So what's the assumption behind this request of Esther? Verse 14. If you don't do this, then God will bring about salvation from another place. The assumption is God's going to save his people because God said he was going to save his people. By one way or another, God will save his people. And who knows, maybe you're the way that God is choosing to save his people. Mordecai is asking her, could it be that he wants to use you, Esther? How does she reply? Verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So why does Esther tell Mordecai and the people to fast? Just a side note, it doesn't say fast and pray, but I think these two kind of went together. You know, like Forrest Gump says, uh, they go together like peas and carrots, right? Um, this is kind of what I assume from this when I read this. Fasting and praying go together. If you're not fasting and praying, then you're just going on a diet. So I think they just went together. Um, and so why would she ask him to do this? Because she is assuming 
that there is a God who hears her prayers. There is a God who hears their prayers. And so even though, here's, here's one of your blanks, even though God is not mentioned, his people still believe that God would change the outcome. Every event in this book is orchestrated by God. He isn't mentioned, but his fingerprints are all over the story. Uh, Albert Moeller says it like this. Every single text of Scripture points to Christ. He is the Lord of all, and therefore he is the Lord of Scriptures too. From Moses to the prophets, he is the focus of every single word of the Bible. Every verse of Scripture finds its fulfillment in him, and every story of the Bible ends with him. I love that story. You know, it makes me think about, when, when you think about these uh, coincidences in the Bible, all through, I just mentioned a ton of those stories. I think about Naaman, not even uh, one of God's people, and he has leprosy. And one day he raises people, and he gets this little uh, Israelite uh, girl and takes her captive. And she just so happens to end up in service of Naaman's wife. And Naaman and Naam, this, Naaman's wife and this little girl get to talking. Yeah, my husband has leprosy. Oh, really? Well, too bad she can't meet Elijah because I know this guy that heals people. It's pretty awesome. So what's the coincidence? She just so happens to have this discussion. And the wife goes back and tells Naaman. Naaman goes and asks the king, Hey, I hear that someone in y'all's place can do some healing. He asks the king, Can you heal me? Huh? out of my wheelhouse. Elijah hears about the story. Send towards me. And so we have Elijah. Uh, Naaman shows up at Elijah's house. Uh, COVID, 850 BC, just hit the area. And college football had just come back. So Naaman's watching, I mean, Elijah's watching college football up in, no, not really, but he doesn't want to come down. Maybe college football was back. He's like, I can't come down right now. It just, just started back. So he tells him to go and dip in the Jordan seven times. This is bizarre. Why would I do that? This, that's crazy. His servant tells him, tells Naaman, you know, you're dying. What, what difference does it make? Why don't you give it a shot? Yeah, you're true. So he goes to the Jordan and he dips seven times. And guess what? He gets healed. You can look at that story from the outside and you can look, that, that's just a bunch of coincidences of something that happened. Or you can see that it wasn't a bunch of coincidences. Here's what Naaman says when he goes back to Elijah's house. Uh, he says, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He doesn't give credit to the water. He doesn't give credit to Elijah. He does, what does he tell him? I believe with all of my heart that the God of Israel healed me. He gives credit where credit is due. That's exactly what's going to happen in the book of Esther. We do not see his name, but we're going to see him working every single step of the way. We will probably, here on this earth, never see Jesus physically. We will probably never audibly hear Jesus speak to us, right? But I believe that he is working in our lives every single step of the way. The question is, do we believe that? Do we believe that there is a holy, sovereign God who is orchestrating our lives? There are really only two options. We can be, believe that life is nothing but a set of circumstances. Uh, everything just happens by chance. 
or we can believe that there is a sovereign God who's working out everything in our lives for our good and for his glory. The question is, are you resting in that sovereignty today? Are you resting in the sovereignty of an almighty, holy God? Do we believe that? You know, Jesus said to his disciples, Blessed, uh, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who haven't seen me and believed. You know, we are going to face a lot in this life. Good, bad, all sets of circumstances. We are either going to believe that it's all a bunch of chance, that this is just the hand that we've been dealt, or we're going to believe that there's a creator who created us, who loves us, and he's orchestrating our lives for his good purpose. And when we trust in that, when we trust in a God that loves us so much that he would take his son and place him on a cross for you and for me, then we can see his hand at work in our lives. We can trust that his heart, with all of our heart, that what we believe in, that he's working all things out for our good and for his good purpose, for his glory. So how do we respond? Two things, two thoughts as we end tonight. First of all, we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We hear the good news. We hear the gospel. We hear that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. And when we hear that and God changes our heart, guess what? We say yes. That's how we respond. First thing we have to do is we have to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Even though we don't see him, we believe it. And secondly, we can make disciples. We live in a day and age where people are bombarded with fake gospels and false doctrine, false truths that promise freedom, that promise everything in the world, but only lead to bondage. And we need to be a part of what God is doing and what God has asked us to do. Matthew 28, verse 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that God has commanded us to do. And in the same way that Satan was working in Genesis, in the same way that Satan was working in Esther, I promise you Satan is working overtime to get his uh, will across today. God does not need us to do anything But you know what's awesome? He delights to use us. He delights to use his people. And I hope that we will allow him to do so. So let's pray tonight as we end.